Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined here today by David. Hi, I'm David. David is here today to talk about his experiences driving for Lyft and to discuss the gig economy more broadly. Is there, like, a reason you really wanted to discuss this, I guess, first off? Well, what's interesting to me about what's broadly called the gig economy is I do think that it's got a lot of positives and a lot of interesting connotations for the future of work, but also in a lot of ways it's terrible. And I think that we need to discuss more of the ways in which it's terrible because uh, all that stuff is often hidden. Right. And hopefully we'll be able to discuss that on this show. Um, now, you drove for Lyft, right? I drove for Lyft and Uber. Oh, for both of them. Okay. And then uh, how long did you do that? Uh, let's see. I think I did it probably for about three to four months um, as my only job. And then I used it to fill in the corners, so to speak, mm-hmm. when I had other jobs. Now, are you still doing that? Uh, very little. I was able, I recently started doing the 40 hours a week thing, and okay. I've been able to live without it. Okay. So you prefer the having 40 hours a week to driving for. Uh, it's difficult to say, honestly. I really enjoyed driving Uber full-time because I enjoyed I enjoyed driving, and I also enjoyed the freedom that it gives you. But I, I do very much enjoy, you know, getting a steady paycheck um, that is enough to feed, feed myself and uh, my cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, when you were doing Uber full-time, how much would you say you got a week? A week? Uh, It's tough to say, honestly, because I did it so uh, piecemeal. Every time I made money, I was transferring it immediately into my account in order to pay for whatever I had to pay for that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But per week, I would say... Um, I, I'd actually rather not say. I don't oh. have a good number. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but in a day, I could definitely make 60 to $70 if I drove all day. Okay, so that's... What's all day, then, I guess? Uh, if I drove... I roughly made about 10 hours, $10 an hour, rather. Okay. Um, but that's not adjusted to account for gas or car wear and tear or anything like that. So if I drove for 8 to 10 hours, I could walk away with 80 to to $100. Which is slightly less than minimum wage in New York now. It is. And again, you know, I, that's not accounting for gas or right. the eventual uh, wear and tear on your car. Now, you were driving with your own car? I was. Because there are a lot of people, apparently, who are, like, loaning their car directly from Uber at usually ridiculously high interest rates. Yep. I'm not very knowledgeable about that, but I do know that people... It, Uber has a, a car leasing program, I think it is. And as you say, they are ridiculous rates. And what ends up happening is people become trapped into Uber because they have to work a certain amount of time in order to pay for their car payment that week. And then, you know, additionally, in order to make money. Right. And, and there's usually like these really crazy restrictions on it. Like you can only use that car to drive for Uber. You can't use it for your own personal needs. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, and if you think about it, um, you know, when Uber's when Uber is leasing the car, they've got more skin in the game. And I actually think I heard recently that they were doing that less and less, um, but I'm not sure. But they've got more skin in the game when it's uh, their own car, and so they have to sort of cover themselves. They make it, right. you know, they don't want you driving it um, for any types of errands and things. For me, that just sort of begs the question of, like, how dangerous is it for me to be using my car if they're if right, they're you yeah. know too scared to insure their own? Mm-hmm. And um, you had to insure your own car. Yep, obviously. Yep. Like uh, the way insurance works, and um, thank goodness that I never had to actually test it out. But Uber um, supposedly insures your car. Uber and Lyft ins- mm-hmm. insures your car while you're working, so you've got a different. You've got their insurance while you're on on the app, as it were. 
Um, but then when you're not working, it's your own. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wish that I had more information. I don't have any uh, firsthand experience of trying to deal with Uber's insurance. Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine it. Can't be great. I, I would imagine not, no. <laughs> now, what first drew you to like driving for Uber and Lyft? Uh, well, I went into it, let's see, the first thing that drew me was I was working a 40-hour-a-week type of job, and mm-hmm. I just wasn't quite making ends meet. And so as soon as it came here to Rochester, I started driving it um, just to make a little bit of extra money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I... I I liked it, and then I, well, I had another job, and then I lost that job, but that's a whole thing. Um, but I ended up being unemployed, and I started doing it uh, full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I enjoyed is, you know, I do like driving, and I really enjoyed getting to talk to people. Um, you definitely, I definitely felt like I met a much greater cross-section of Rochester than I ever had before. Also, uh, came to... Uh, experience and be in parts of Rochester that I never had before, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um, and I enjoyed not having a boss. I enjoyed not having a dress code or waking up whenever I want. All these things are good, but um, I just wasn't making very much money. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> the flexibility is kind of like the appeal of Uber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing that I've thought is that a lot of the sort of surface problems with work you avoid when you're driving or doing this gig economy type mm-hmm. of thing, you avoid, you know, annoying bosses, dress codes, rush hour traffic, waking, all that stuff. And But I think that sometimes, you know, you get so amped about being able to wake up when you want to that you uh, don't think about the realities of how cheaply you're selling your labor and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now, you talk about interacting with, like, customers and stuff, and tell me about, like, the rating system that they have. Right. Um, well, that is one of the differing points between Lyft and Uber. For one thing, um, Uber will force everyone to give a review, and mm-hmm. Lyft will sort of ask if you want to. Small difference, but it does make some effect. As far as the ratings go, it's a, a five-star system. People will give you five stars if they really liked you, or one star if they don't. At least that's how it's supposed to work. In actuality, um, pretty much everyone gives five stars. Thank you for that public solidarity. <laughs> Uh, but so it becomes that if you see someone with like a 4.0 or 4, 4.1, it's almost like mm-hmm. they have, you know, a failing grade. And then, of course, there's the reviews. Um, as with many of those, you know, it's only the most grumpy and irate people that want to leave a review. Right, right. <laughs> did you ever feel like pressure to like maintain your rating or? Um, I did to some degree. I know I've definitely talked to other Uber drivers that feel much more of that pressure. And invariably, it's sort of a a matter of uh, maybe a class distinction or at least precariousness Mm -hmm. is the better word. Because, you know, for me, I always felt like even when I was driving full time, I always was interviewing. I always had uh, offers in the pot and I didn't feel quite so much as though I needed to make sure I had a perfect rating every single time. Um, but then I have been in, as a rider, I've been in cars with people that are really trying and you can tell this because this is their job and, you know, yeah. they, they need to make as much as they possibly can. I did definitely feel a certain amount of obligation to, you know, be pleasant, be nice to everybody, even yeah. if I didn't like them or didn't agree with stuff they were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, that's no different from any sort of customer service environment, certainly. And yeah, it's like emotional labor it is it is um and you know a lot of the time you're going to be you're you're talking to people an awful Mm -hmm. lot you know um much more than i would as say a cashier or something yeah you learn a lot more about people and people's lives and sometimes you do have to invest more in them than you would want to right because in a way they're like your boss in a way yeah very much instead of having one boss which you feared you had well how many writers would you say you got a day in a day well i'd say i probably got uh Three to five an hour. Okay. Um, so in a day, I could... 20? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. 20 in a day. So it's kind of like the stresses of having a boss multiplied in a way. Yeah, very much so, actually. And it's true that any one of those people can really tank your uh, average ratings because it only takes one one-star review to really right. destroy your average. And then, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you don't get as many rides. All right. 
Um, because I know like one of the things that bugs me about my job is whenever my boss is actually around, I work a lot of shifts where I'm basically unsupervised, mm-hmm. but having the boss actually be around is like an added stressor. It just makes me think twice about everything I'm doing yeah. in ways that are really unpleasant. That is very much the same. Um, definitely when there's people in the cars, I was always much more on edge, much more at attention. Um, and also in a way it is dangerous because I know for myself, I do, uh, I feel like I'm a better driver when I'm by myself. If mm-hmm. no one's talking to me, if I don't have to pay attention to something else. So it can be that, um, it can be more dangerous too having somebody in the car. And the other yeah. thing I thought of is, you know, you say you're more on edge when your boss is there. One very bizarre thing about doing this ride sharing mm-hmm. gig is that, you know, your car is in a way kind of like you're an extension of your home, of yourself. Yep. Um, and so you invite people in and, you know, they can sort of see the the stain on your chair and they can judge what you have on the radio. It's very, it's very invasive in a way. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, you know, it is, it is fun as well because, because you're using, you know, your assets, you're using your car to right. make money. Um, um, now, would you would you say you made enough to make ends meet doing this? I made enough to make ends meet, but without paying my credit card bills. Okay, so <laughs> so no. So you were <laughs> cutting corners here and there, exactly. Right? Okay, no, I didn't know if you were like living at home or. No, no, I I was able to make enough to pay my rent and to pay for food and stuff, but okay. um, it wasn't long term sustainable. I see. Before we move on to a different topic, is there any? other sort of experience from driving that you'd like to share? Uh, well, one thing that I thought of when we were talking about sort of the emotional labor of talking to people and all that stuff was uh, this, this situation that I think many of us have found ourselves in. Um, let me just lay it out there. I am a white man. And there is this phenomenon that happens when racist white people are alone with another white person, which is that they often feel like this is a chance to air their racist grievances. Um, like you're on their side. Yeah, like they were you know, taking the opportunity to tell me about how annoyed they were with other Uber drivers that were not white. Um, I remember one girl saying that it took her a long time to find an Uber driver because she would cancel every ride that came from someone with a Middle Eastern-sounding name. Um, she didn't say it that way. She said it more offensively. Okay. Um, but that's what she said. And, you know, I was in this situation of wanting to tell her how horrible that was mm-hmm. and stupid, um, but also, you know, wanting to make my four bucks yeah. for that ride um, and not really feeling like I could say anything plus i wasn't myself personally at danger um right it's it's a different experience you had from somebody with a middle eastern name that might drive for uber you know and you know while we're talking about dog whistles someone else said um sometimes it's difficult having nice conversations with people because of the language barrier Mm. i mean this is something that materially affects people if People are, like, canceling their rides with you because you are Hispanic or Middle Eastern or Mm -hmm. black. I mean, that's less money in your pocket at the end of the day. Not only that, but an awful lot of the driver's profit does come from tips. Um, Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's just they they say on the thing, you know, they're tipping because you're a good conversationalist or because Mm -hmm. you made them feel comfortable. But really, they're just tipping you because, you know, you were white. Right. No, it's... And that brings out the pressures that, like, waitresses have too where they're like angling for tips the oh, entire yeah. time they're serving exactly you know it's it's like you do have this flexibility like i said before but without the the promise of a steady paycheck you have to compromise yourself in a really painful ways for some people mm. now uh we're going to take a brief break here coming up but uh i do want to reach out to you the listener to say, um, if you have stories about working in the gig economy, we'd like to hear them. You can email us at punchingoutwhale at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. 
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. This is David again. I'm Ryan. And in our last section, I spoke about my experiences driving Lyft. And in retrospect, I think that I might have made it sound almost a little bit too rosy. Um, While there were a lot of things that I enjoyed about being a Lyft and Uber driver, um, there are a lot of terrible things about it as well. And in a lot of ways, the, the problems with this type of work are hidden under the surface. While the while at the surface level, we do get to avoid a lot of the problems of typical work. Um, under the surface, all of these problems, all these labor problems are lying. And I think Ryan knows a little bit more about that than me. Yeah, you, you had talked during the break about how like you like the model of just being able to bring up an Uber driver on your phone. That's something that Uber has legitimately done that is better than taxis and that isn't exploitative. Mm-hmm. But they are exploitative. And there's like legitimate reasons for people to oppose Uber and Lyft that aren't just, you know, like bitterness. Yeah, or it's, it wasn't there when I was a kid, so it must be bad. Right, right. Um, one group that has been especially opposed to Uber and Lyft is taxi drivers mm-hmm. with, for the obvious reason of the addition of Uber and Lyft has sort of undercut their business in a lot of ways and made it very hard for drivers to compete. Yep. And this was actually something that a lot of uh, writers would bring up with me as a conversation starter, which I thought was sort of a weird conversation starter. Did you know that your industry is destroying another industry? Thanks. Um, But I always felt a little bit um, um, divided about it because on the one hand, taxi drivers are workers and solidarity to all workers, of course. Um, but on the other hand, it is a old model that is perhaps um, being phased out now. Mm-hmm. Again, the thing about being able to call one on your phone is so convenient. Right. Um, now, there's a, there was a story in the New York Times earlier this month about a taxi driver who actually uh, took his own life almost in protest to the changes he saw coming from these gig economy drivers. Um, I stand corrected, listeners. There were two stories in the New York Times about taxi drivers killing themselves and Uber almost being blamed as the cause. First came in February, a man named Doug Schlifter, who was in his early 60s, killed himself with a shotgun in front of Lower Manhattan, having written a lengthy Facebook post several hours earlier laying out the cruelties that had left him in such dire circumstance. He was now sometimes forced to work more than 100 hours a week to survive, he said. When he had started out in the 1980s, a 40-hour week was fairly typical. Mm -hmm. He blamed politicians and their acquiescence to the rich for permitting so many cars to flood the streets. He blamed the taxi commissions for the fine and hassles it imposed. And then just this past month, there was a story in the New York Times, uh, Nicanor Okasor, he was a Romanian immigrant, also in his 60s, was one of four professional drivers to take their lives in the last five months. And his wife is blaming Uber as the cause of what happened. And it's not hard to see why. Mm -hmm. And um, Uber is, I think, rightfully blamed in a lot of ways. I know that I only, I just said that perhaps that old model is being phased out, but uh, let's be clear that Uber and Lyft are actively trying to destroy taxis. Mm-hmm. Um, I read just now that the actual cost of an Uber ride in terms of what you should be paying is indeed a lot higher. Right. Um, and the investors in Uber and Lyft are basically funding the other half of your ride. So I don't and think w- they've really made a profit yet. As no, a company. they have not yet made a true profit. Um, their business model at this point is entirely designed to wipe out taxis right. and other public transportation so that they can raise their prices once right. they have a monopoly. Right, and the idea is that eventually they'll even phase out their drivers because they, they want those self-driving cars. They sure will, and that will be the, uh, that'll be the, the time when the plan has come to fruition. Yeah, <laughs> but until then, they'll like 
the companies rake in this like venture capital money that allows them to operate at a loss for so long. Mm-hmm. They're raking in venture capital money, and they're also taking about uh, 30% of the money that uh, you as the rider pay for your ride. That's actually a good point. Is Did you get to see like the breakdown of where a fare went to when you were driving? I think they do have a breakdown somewhere deep in the app if you uh, search, but it changes all the time. What I do know is that as a sort of a general rule, if it was about a $7 ride, and I would judge the length of the ride based on my experience as a rider, Uber did not tell me up front how much you know, the ride costs for the passenger. Okay. But if it was about a $7 ride for the passenger, I would make about $4. Okay. Just to sort of illustrate how these drivers are kind of undercutting taxi drivers, I think is fair to say. No offense to you. Oh, no, it's very fair. You know. Um, the New York Times writes, For decades, there have been no more than 12,000 to 13,000 taxis in New York. And now there are more than 100,000 of these cars around New York, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or the taxis themselves. And yeah. the more drivers you have, the less everybody is going to be able to make ends meet. Yep, yep. It's, um, it's really great for the company that owns... That for the owners and for the consumers. Yeah. Um, and it's really terrible for the workers and the environment, which uh, you can blow out for a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because um, all those extra cars on the street is fewer people taking public transit. Mm-hmm. I think actually New York City has imposed like an extra fee on Lyft and Uber rides where some of that money goes towards funding public transit, which I think is a reasonable yeah, they should. Um, that's very reasonable to me. I also think that um, in the perfect world, some of the money would go to the roads, yeah. um, which you know is a, a public service built by public works, but being used by Uber and Lyft to make profit. Yeah. Beyond just the uh, taxi drivers who have these, this obvious material incentive to dislike Uber and Lyft, mm-hmm. there's opposition, I guess, from cities who view... Uber and Lyft is sort of rogues who are just coming in unasked, unwelcomed, and violating labor law, basically, is what they're doing. Yeah, well, part of the problem is definitely, um, I don't know very much about Lyft's internal workings, right. but I know that Uber was definitely run by just a team of douchebags yeah. uh, <laughs> early on. And, you know, they they flouted city laws. They expected cities just to go along with them. Right. Um, they even had programs in place for their drivers to be able to work in cities before it was technically legal to do so. Right. And oftentimes when they arrived in a city, they'd, like, start off by, like, giving away free rides. Mm-hmm. Again, funding, putting money into the system so that they could attract customers and then raise prices later. Exactly, exactly, and undercutting uh, what was already available. Yeah. I, I know Austin didn't ban Uber, but there was a city vote, and Uber threatened to leave if they were forced to make their drivers take background checks, which mm-hmm. seems like a reasonable request, I think we can say, especially because in the early years, Uber had like a problem with like drivers being not great. Yeah. And the people of Austin voted to require them to do background checks, and Uber left the city for a year. Yep. Well, and that, that was sort of how Uber has always operated and mm-hmm. definitely operated originally, very sort of uh, spoiled almost. Yeah. And there is sort of a definition of work that emerged under industrial capitalism, we can say, that defined work as being the stuff you do for a boss, you know, they set your schedule, they, and you get a wage. And what Uber and, more broadly, the gig economy does is they sort of exploit the difference between that legal definition of work, which has sort of set our laws for the last century or so, and what work actually means. Because mm-hmm. I think it's obvious to me and you that you were working for Uber and Lyft, mm-hmm. effectively. But under the law, you were an independent contractor. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. And um, what I think is interesting about this idea that we're talking about of, you know, sort of socially accepted idea of work, I guess, 
um, is it is a fairly recent concept. A lot of yeah. the things that we associate with work, the 40-hour week, the mm -hmm. weekend, uh, the minimum wage, and being paid more than the minimum wage, <laughs> these are victories that were won by labor in the, in the 1900s. Right. Uh, so it's pretty new. And then this gig economy sort of exists as a way for employers to skirt that and go back to the good old days of, you know, serfdom. Right, right. And, like, just to give an idea of how new it is, like, Abraham Lincoln, if you said to him nine to five, he wouldn't have known what the hell you were talking about. Right, right. And, you know, the, the unions and activists and stuff used to fight for that 40-hour work week. Right. And sort of effectively work became sort of standardized and codified as, you know, the stuff you do outside your home, which excludes, like, domestic work, which mm -hmm. was sort of a flaw of that model. And that definition has gaps that have been used by Uber and Lyft now. Very much so. And a huge part of the problem with being an Uber and Lyft driver is the benefits, healthcare, and things like that, yeah. and the things that would be uh, solved by a more, by a more uh, because social if you were, program. I mean, it, even if you were just like classified as an employee of Uber and Lyft, they would be required to provide you health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, yep, basically. They but, would be. But since you aren't, you were left, uh, did you have insurance? Uh, Uber and Lyft did, I think. Well, I mean, have... health insurance. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> right. Um, I remember Lyft did try send me a couple emails about some health insurance program, but it didn't look any better than the Affordable Care Act insurance right. that I already had. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't, let me be clear, it wasn't a typical employment health insurance contract. Right. It was more of a buy-in into, you know, some, mm -hmm. some, something. So there are reasons why, even though Uber and Lyft like tout their flexibility, and that flexibility has sort of become like a buzzword in the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. Originally, for good reasons, because there were more women in the workforce to begin with, and those women needed the flexibility to like adjust around childcare schedules. But now the flexibility is Uber's flexibility to not pay you health insurance. <laughs> you know. Lyft doesn't have to give you minimum wage tech. Yep. You didn't make minimum wage. No, they don't. Um, and one thing about that flexibility that uh, does sort of bug me is that um, if you're really trying to make a living at Uber and Lyft, it's not all that flexible. You have to be driving the weekend nights, the early mornings. You know, you've got to be out at the right times. Right. Um, it is flexible in that you can work whenever you want, but uh, you won't make money whenever you want. They aren't setting your schedule, but you're going to have a set schedule. Exactly. And, you know, we're going to talk about the big uh, sneaky things that these corporations do to uh, save money at the expense mm -hmm. of their drivers. But there are little things as well that um, were very frustrating as a driver. For example, uh, the number one thing is with Uber, when you... When you get a hail as a driver and you're driving, you get a little bit of information. You get their name. You get um, their own rating because actually uh, drivers can rate riders as well. And you get how far away the ride is. But significantly what it doesn't tell you is how long the ride will be. So every Uber driver has a story about driving out 15 minutes, 20 minutes to you know some far-flung suburb because some kid needs to get driven down the road to the gas station. <laughs> so you make, you make three bucks and you drove for 15 minutes into right. you know, absolutely nowhere. And then you're stuck there and you have to drive back to the city to get another ride. Um, this is something that Uber could easily, easily fix and make easier for the rider. Yeah. But they won't because it would make things uh, a little bit more difficult as a rider. I, um, think, you... I think I said rider twice. That's, that's okay. <laughs> And actually, recently, California, like, their s Supreme Court made a ruling that says, effectively, down the line, Uber might be required to classify their employees as actual employees instead of contractors. Yeah, and that would be incredible because then they'll have access to benefits, they'll have access to health insurance, and they'll have access to more protection under the law as employees. Um. I'm reading from, like, San Francisco's CBS affiliate. Uh, in a big win for labor act advocates, the California Supreme Court on Monday limited businesses from classifying workers as independent contractors who can't receive key employment protections. 
And this is almost targeted at Uber and Lyft because they're the companies that make the most use out of this. Um, the court unanimously adopted a broad definition for those who qualify as employees. And going on, to list workers as independent contractors, businesses have to show they don't control and direct the work, which Uber claims they don't, but like mm-hmm. we said, you kind of are they directed. Do, you know, and one thing that was important to me was I, I always felt kind of like, oh, this is great. I'm able to use my own car. I'm able to use my own assets in order to make money. This is, this is what capitalism is all about. But the problem is that I am not able to do that without Uber or Lyft to intercede. Right. And, you know, they sort of they have a block on that. They, mm-hmm. And then the other qualification is that their duties have to fall outside what the company normally does. And Uber has tried to argue that they're a technology company, but I think everybody can agree just sort of commonsensically that Uber is a transportation company effectively. Yeah. You know, they're clearly not, you know, anyone can tell that, but this is the machinations of Silicon Valley. Right. Um, And I think the same thing has happened to them in Europe where they got the a court ruled that no you guys are in the transportation business don't yeah well and as someone who um is starved for good news on the internet like all of us yeah. um i always do love to follow the european courts decisions on <laughs> uber because they're always so satisfying <laughs> <laughs> more broadly this is sort of why an employee might not be happy with uber and lyft because of they go out of their way to sort of squeeze workers uh I think there have been stories, maybe you can confirm this, you didn't work there too long, but like over the years, they've gradually reduced their fares. Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, that's less money in driver's pockets. Yeah, I started working Uber after that had already happened. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it definitely did happen. I know that... um, one a parent of one of, of a friend of mine used to drive or still drives um, all the companies, including taxi, and you know she definitely noticed that. Definitely had to start working much longer hours with Uber to make the same amount of money. And these companies have actually been sued. Uh, Lyft, I think, has lost a lawsuit in the past and had to pay drivers for like extra compensation that they should have gotten but didn't. Right, yeah, I heard that. That was just a year or two ago, I think, wasn't it? Uh, last year, I think. Yeah. And just this past week, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that companies can enforce contracts r- requiring workers to go through individual arbitration, which means if they have a problem with the company, they have to go one-on-one with the company, which I think is an obvious imbalance. Right, right. And, um, you know, when you hear... All, when you hear all these uh, big words coming out of legislators, I, for me at least, it's important to code it. Um, when they say individual arbitration, basically it's just a strike against unions, uh, plain and yeah. simple. It like prevents workers from filing class action lawsuits, which is where so many of these big settlements against companies like Lyft come mm-hmm. from. And, you know, these people that are advocates of this whole individual arbitration, this finding, will say, well, there's nothing to stop you as the Uber driver to from suing Uber by yourself if you have a legitimate problem. Uh, but, it'll work. But we all know that doesn't work. One person suing a company almost never wins. You're going to drown in legal fees before they break a sweat. Exactly. I mean, how many hours of Uber would I have to drive to afford one hour of a lawyer? <laughs> right. A lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, this is Gizmodo's article about the ruling. It says, uh, it's a dreadful blow to all workers regardless of their grievance. Even though the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, protections do not apply to contractors, the ruling has brought a swift end to a tactic popular among those engaged in the gig economy. Um, a lawyer who filed a suit on behalf of Lyft drivers, he says, the effect of today's decision will be to end misclassification class actions for gig economy workers and for everyone else. Basically, it will end the ability to sue Lyft and Uber for wrongfully calling you a contractor when, in fact, you're an employee. Yeah, yeah. Um, the government's coming out on the side of Uber on this one, you know, yeah. or Lyft. And just to talk about the government for a moment, uh, the majority opinion of the Supreme Court was written by Neil Gorsuch, who is the justice appointed by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. 
So mm-hmm. when also believes that a a driver who was freezing on a mountaintop should have stayed with his truck rather than uh, seeking warmth. Right. He's notoriously anti-labor even before he became a Supreme Court justice, and now that he is, he is using that power to set the law of the land, basically. Yeah, and what's really uh, troubling for me about this is it does seem to me like the gig economy is going to be the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's just so many reasons why, you know, people need that flexibility, especially since we need to have two parents in the workforce now. Uh, you know, so there is always going to be a parent who has got to work around the schedule of a child. And often that's going to be uh, driving, driving for Lyft or Uber. And also with the huge uptick in freelancing and other types of gig economy jobs recently, um, you know, if the government is making it easier for uh, companies to abuse the gig economy and exploit workers, it's just going to get worse for all of us in the long run. That's a happy note to end this segment on. We'll, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined here by David. Hi. And um, today we're talking about the gig economy. David drove for months for Uber and Lyft, and but more broadly, we're talking about these. I guess how would how would you define the gig economy? Do you have a good definition? The f- definition of the gig economy, I'd say it's probably it's uh, it's something without a boss, where you know you are technically sort of working for yourself, but. Um, <laughs> It's definitely defined for me by working through these other companies, be it Uber, Lyft, Tax, Task Rabbit, uh, these things that you have on smartphones. Uh, these apps. These basically. apps, yeah. yeah. And the the whole idea is that they offer this sort of flexibility, which has obvious benefits, but that flexibility is then used to justify the downsides of the gay economy, which yep. is low pay, not being able to be insured through your employer, basically. Well, and they're not even really used to justify. You know, Uber will make a lot of hay from the flexibility, from all <laughs> that stuff, and then, you know, they don't talk about the other right, stuff. You've right. got you've to go reading stuff on the internet to, mm-hmm. you know, really discover how it's screwing you. Yeah, there was this story on, like, Bloomberg last year about the Uber drivers who are now sleeping in their cars. Mm. Basically, they hang out together in parking lots they like discuss the best parking lots for sleeping in this happens a lot in like san francisco near the bigger cities especially because you can make so much more money driving in these larger cities because there's so many more fares so many more riders available but you can't afford rent off an uber absolutely salary living in san francisco so they live in like one of the distant suburbs but then during the week they sleep in their car so they can get up at 4 a.m. in San Francisco and carry around hipsters to Facebook and (laughs) Google's campuses. And one weird thing about working in this gig economy is I think it does make you a lot more anxious about your time. Um, It makes you much more aware of your labor as a function of time, which in a way is a good thing Um, if you're, you know, becoming a budding materialist, but yeah. uh, it's it's very bad. It's very stressful. I remember I always felt like anytime I was taking a day off or an afternoon off or an hour off, I was thinking, well, I could be making money right now. Yeah. And I feel like it might be the same with these drivers um, out in San Francisco or New York. Personally, mm-hmm. I don't have to deal with that so much because in Rochester, I'm able to live right around where I work. Yeah. But out in those big cities, you know, they must be thinking, well, I could drive an hour back home, but um, that's a that's an hour's worth of gas and an hour's worth of fares that I'm giving up. It's interesting that you frame things in terms of time because I've been I've been reading this book. Um, I can't say the title on air, so the title is BS Jobs, but I think you can fill in the blank there. <laughs> and it talks about like the history of time, basically, and how it basically emerges only in like the 
1700s that you have these standardized clocks mm-hmm. and bosses expect you to arrive on time. Yep. And of course, you know, that timeline does only proceed by a few years. You know, the the building of, of markets and free market ec- economics and right. stuff, because, you know, the measuring of time is something that is mostly useful to most of us in terms of when we have to get to work and how long we've been working for. Right, right. It was especially useful to bosses. Like the author talks about um, how in some factories the bosses would like mess with the clock so that workers didn't know how long they'd been there because mm-hmm. pocket watches weren't particularly prevalent there or they might have even banned the workers from having watches on them. Well, and if you're working in a factory, they probably didn't have the money for a watch too. Yeah, right, yeah. And this is a huge contrast from just like a couple hundred years earlier where everybody viewed things in terms of like farm activities and that's Mm -hmm. how you would measure time. Like this thing takes the amount of time it takes for an egg to boil that, you know, that's how they would talk about time and not in these sort of discrete measurements that you'd need if you're going to be paying people by the hour. Yeah. And I think that your time is very apparent to you and sort of painful to you as an Uber driver or a Lyft driver, because unlike at work, you're not getting paid uh, by, the, by hour. the hour. Right. So at work, you know, you you do, you staple this form, you copy that form, and you walk to the bathroom, and all that time is paid the same, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Whereas yeah. an Uber, if there's not someone in the car with you, you're not getting paid for it, and instead you're just away from your home for no reason. So instead of trying to find ways to like stretch time out, but to take more time than you need to do something, you're doing the opposite. You're trying to rush and you're trying to squeeze time. Yep, yep. With Uber and Lyft, it was just, there. there's no such thing as wasting time there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it. it's tough because you feel like you're working when you're out, you're driving on the streets, you're parked somewhere on the street, and, you know, you're not, you're not at home, you're not with your loved ones. It feels right. like you're working, mm-hmm. but you're not being paid. Yeah, And if you stop and get a coffee, you've just uh, spent about two miles worth of driving. Right. Do you think that's unhealthy, that, that sort of having that mindset all the time? Uh, yeah, I do think so. I think that it's, uh, it causes a lot of anxiety, I think. And I think if you're stressed out about money, like most of us are all the time, yeah. um, it is very easy to drive yourself to unhealthy levels, and it's very easy to miss out on a lot at home. And as a matter of fact, while I was driving Uber, they did come out with a new policy that uh, if you had your app on for more than, I think, 10 hours, it would automatically shut off. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it was 12 hours, which okay. is even worse. Uh, it would automatically shut off after 12 hours, which... For me, just, you know, really was really depressing to think that people are driving for more than 12 hours and they have to actually be stopped. Well, you see that in like the trucking industry, especially. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just unique to Uber. It's like there are truckers who like they had to impose laws where you need to take X amount of time off for every 10 hours, 12 hours driving. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the companies themselves find ways to skirt these laws. They, they oh, expect sure. their drivers to like fill in the time book or whatever they have correctly so that they can drive more. Yep. And it really is kind of a sick kind of calculus to think about um, in these boardrooms where they have to think, you know, well, we we want our drivers to be driving as much as possible and, you Mm -hmm. know, so we can exploit as much uh, surplus value out of them as possible. But we also don't need the press to run with a bunch of stories about Uber cars crashing into each other. Right. So how do we... are so tired. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, and I just imagine these these suit-wearing uh, executives thinking, you know, so when do we cut it off? How do we make it so that they're still working all the time, but we're not getting in trouble? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's sort of cynical to view things that way, but that's the sort of calculation they're making, you know. Mm-hmm. To Uber, the workers are sort of a nuisance because they want to get rid of them. We know that. Yep. And, you know, it's the same with the truck drivers. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you go about the world thinking in this way, you start to realize that, you know, your humanity is really an inconvenience to your employers yeah. most of the time, especially mm-hmm. if you're a driver and you have to do things like stop to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things are an inconvenience to these companies, like basic labor laws mm-hmm. um, or just 
the idea of decency. Like, I don't know if you've seen this. There's this, like, new scooter company. It wants to be, like, the Uber of scooters. It's not actually called that. But it... I don't know why not, though. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just popped up in cities in, like, the last six months. I don't think I heard about it before then. And one of the side effects of that is that there are now just scooters all over the sidewalks of San Francisco just laying Mm -hmm. there, like, where people should walk. Yeah, and you see this all the time, especially with these types of, you know, new new jobs, new corporations, is that there are always unexamined side effects and things like that that are just sort of borne by the public. You, you made the point earlier about, like, roads as being a public good that, mm-hmm. you know, Uber and Lyft and all these, like, delivery services, too, they all take use of. Yep. And, you know, they're, they don't pay for it at all. Right. Uh, it's paid for with our tax dollars. There's a similar effect, which uh, goes outside the purview of this episode, but with Amazon. Um, using the postal service. Using the postal service. No. And Amazon doesn't even pay federal taxes, so they've <laughs> yeah. paid nothing towards that. You hear a lot from, like, free market types who want to, like, make everything into a transaction. And you see some of that, like, ethos in, like, the gig economy and Silicon Valley types. But I think we can calculate the math a bit differently because mm-hmm. so often these people are just willing to ignore the public cost of things. They're willing to ignore the way that Uber and Lyft benefit from roads. They're ignoring the way this scooter company is benefiting from the sidewalk space they're taking up. Not to mention environmental cost. Right, right. Like if you actually wanted people to pay their own way, Uber and Lyft and every fossil fuel company would be paying a hell of a lot more than they are now. Absolutely. Like, I've seen, like, a statistic where Uber touts how many of their drivers are going less than 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. But in that case, like, Uber is being subsidized by those drivers' other jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely, they are. You know, because if you think about the drivers as a resource, those drivers' other jobs are what's keeping them alive. Right. All those drivers that do it as a side job, less than 10 hours, that kind of thing. I also want to examine that um, they're probably not as good at driving. You know, Uber doesn't take any accountability for whether or not their drivers are safe on the roads or right. not. Yeah, or or whether their non-drivers are safe on the mm-hmm. roads. They, did you see the story about, like, their self-driving car that got into an accident? I saw that, ki- yeah. Killed a guy, I think? Yeah, and it came out that it wasn't even an issue with the uh with the cameras or anything mm-hmm. like that it was that the the ai or whatever controls this car mm-hmm. had sort of seen seen the person but by some machination of the algorithm decided it was all right to hit him right. did i read that right <laughs> i've seen a few different variations on on the story but i'll believe just about any of them <laughs> and and like the tech companies have sort of responded to the backlash about this story by pointing out well look at how many people get injured in car accidents when people are driving. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, they want to downplay the effects of this, but it is sort of a a new frontier, I guess. Yeah. It's it's something that we want these companies to be more accountable for their actions. Yeah, well, and I come I come down with the same point on issue after issue after issue, mm-hmm. which is that you know, it's not the fault of the new technology. New technology, I think, is pretty much always good. And I know that there's a lot of examples to prove me wrong. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that new technology is inherently a good thing. The problem is just who gets to make money off right. of it. Um, who owns the means of production? Mm-hmm. Who owns the robots? Basically, the last 200 years have been about this battle over technology. It's been over whether, you know, new machines will mean people work less or mm-hmm. whether they will increase the pace that people have to work at. Yeah. And, like, for rider, driverless cars, I think they're great. Um, you know, my, my vision for the future says that nobody should be allowed to drive cars. They're way too dangerous. They're mm-hmm. ugly. They're destroying the earth. And think of the ways that would enable people who can't currently drive for mm-hmm. disability reasons or if they're bad at driving. Yep. So I think driverless cars, great thing. But I don't want Uber to have a fleet of driverless right. cars. And I don't necessarily want 
UPS to lay off all their transport drivers either. Exactly. If UPS were to lay off all their drivers, I would want their first to be a welfare system, a UBI, and a Medicare for all. Right. UBI being universal basic income, sorry. Yes. No, um, I think we as a society have a choice to make over what happens when new technology appears. Do we let it go sort of unchecked and let the... Elon Musk's and the, right. who was the Uber CEO? He's not anymore. Oh, Lord. I, I've been tr- trying to remember his name, this whole thing. Travis Kalanick. He got fired for a whole number of reasons, but I think we can all agree that we don't necessarily want him being the beneficiary of self-driving car technology. Right. Well, and we talked earlier about how Uber is is not really more efficient than the taxi system we have. The reason right. why you're paying a cheaper price is because they have investors that are subsidizing that cheaper <laughs> price. Um, and in the same way, you know, I think that that's where the sort of libertarian argument about um, just sort of trusting these corporations to uh, push forward the future, it really falls apart because their Uber is not taking advantage of an opening. They're <laughs> using... Uh, the money from angel investors to punch a hole and make an opening for themselves. I think we can see all that investment as sort of a form of class warfare because Mm -hmm. it's really the end purpose of that is to bully out taxi drivers. And taxi driving has historically been like a working class job Mm -hmm. that has supported countless lives. Instead of those lives being benefited, it, it will be the angel investors, as you describe them. Yep. And also, um, you know, the consumers of Uber do see some benefit, but uh, I I would say not very much, you know. (laughs) Companies are very good at pitting workers and consumers against each other. Yes. They, They always have been. Yep. It's always divide and conquer. And for that matter, you know, Uber drivers and taxi drivers should not be in conflict. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have basically the same job. And ideally, they would be able to organize all together yeah. and, uh, you know, make more money for, for everyone that wants to work as a driver. Um, but that's not what's happening. Right. I, I think there's sort of a, an interesting point to be made here where, like, taxi drivers, they have, like, the taxi depots and stuff like that, where Mm -hmm. the drivers actually interact with one another. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but Uber strikes me as being sort of a a solitary job where you don't see your other drivers. You don't see effectively your coworkers. Very solitary. I used to think all the time about how it would be to make a driver's union or a gig worker's union Mm -hmm. and how difficult it would be because, yeah, I almost never met another Uber driver uh, maybe once or twice if we were both in the same restaurant doing the uh, eats, the delivery service. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty much not at all would you have any reason to meet or talk to another Uber or Lyft driver. And also, you are sort of in competition with each other. The yeah, way the model definitely. works, um, you know, everyone goes to the most densely populated spots, the spots with the best mm-hmm. rides. Everyone goes there and tries to get rides and by everyone going there we all undercut each other yeah. yeah i think what you have there is it's just sort of a real obstacle to any sort of attempt to organize or unionize these drivers i've seen it the point made that like the reason unions popped up in like factories is because that was the place where all the workers were they were yeah. all under one roof they saw each other for eight or 12 hours a day at the time. And if I remember right, I think Marx actually writes about that. He says that, Mm -hmm. you know, as factories become larger and larger and the workers within them become more and more like an army and less like just a group of workers, um, eventually it does turn into class consciousness Mm -hmm. and all of that. And it's true, there's just, there's no reason why uh, drivers would meet each other, really. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, Uber and Lyft doesn't make any effort to... To uh, you know, collaborate. collaborate to show bring people together. They don't even um, you know, you can't even see if there's other drivers in your area on your app. I think huh. that would be a nice feature if you could see if there were other people around you driving. I mean, even just from the perspective of you're competing against them, knowing who your competition is, would you would think they would want to enable that? Yeah, 
You might, you would think that, but I think they really don't want people talking to each other. Yeah. Another obstacle is the fact that for many people, it's um, a quote-unquote side hustle, a yep. side job. Um, so a lot of Uber drivers, I think, don't really think of themselves as Uber drivers. They think that they're just doing it on the side or they're just doing it temporarily. Right, and, and that's a huge another obstacle to organizing. Yeah. Um, historically... A big obstacle to unionizing in the U.S. was you always had this frontier where if somebody wasn't cutting it out in New York City, they could pack up and go out west and right, right. find a new job six months later. So I guess before we wrap up this show, can we offer a, an alternative to the current stresses of the gig economy? Can we find a way to make this better if we're not going to get rid of it entirely? And I think there are uses to it. Well, for me, I do try to strike sort of a balance because there's a lot of things about the gig economy that I like and also a lot of things that I very much dislike. But what I like is I do like that we're breaking out of the mold of traditional work. Mm -hmm. um, I like the flexibility. And I really, you know, I've, I've been broke before, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the point where I'm sort of thinking like how if I just had an extra five bucks, I could make it through this week and be fine. But yeah. I just don't. And before I was signed up to drive, I remember just this this rank feeling of powerlessness because there was just simply nothing I could do. You know, mm -hmm. I felt like I was a pretty smart person with a lot of assets and yet just no way to turn any of them into money. Mm -hmm. And so I do enjoy that there is sort of an easy way for me to make an extra quick couple of bucks. And I enjoy that it breaks out of the work cycle of the standard work. Mm -hmm. But um, what we have right now is that these benefits that I list mm -hmm. are very obvious and these companies, you know, use them to exploit their workers mm -hmm. and to make money off of, you know, their labor, which is, which is always bad. So how would I fix it? Um, basically keep almost the same app. I would say mm -hmm. that the user experience is good. Um, but just give all the money to the drivers, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. or at least 90% instead of uh, 70%. Mm -hmm. I think when you talk about like the old model of work, there, there was a reason that a lot of people weren't satisfied with that. Like mm -hmm. you, you think of like factory work or cubicle work, and we don't want to glorify that at the expense of the gig economy. No, that works up too. So Uber... And Lyft and the gig economy as a whole really benefit from that dissatisfaction that people rightly felt. Yeah. Well, and to examine to examine that traditional work a little bit, what I'm calling traditional work, mm -hmm. um, first of all, I think that I do have sort of a, a pre-inclination to say that I don't like it. And I think mm -hmm. that that's because of a cultural standard that was right. in place from like maybe the 70s to now of just you don't want to be a sheep, quote unquote. You yeah. don't want to work in a cubicle. It's bad. And like these companies, their advertising is often about that directly. Mm -hmm. They like use those lines almost exactly. Yeah. And of course, you know, we all have problems with work. Many of us don't like it. But the fact is that it could be a lot worse. And um, part of the reason why it could be a lot worse is because it used to be a lot worse. And yeah. then in, you know, in the 1900s, there was a strong labor movement in this mm -hmm. country. And they won things like the 40 hour week and benefits and all of that. So these jobs that we have now, while they might feel perhaps dreary, they're, act they're good, and the, these gig economy jobs sort of, they take away all the benefits, and they promise you this shiny sort of, look at you, you're, a, you're not a drone, you're not an office drone anymore, yeah. that's what you get in, in return. Uh, you talked about, you know, wanting just anything to not be broke, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one possible alternative is not having to rely on the private companies of the world to be your solution out of brokenness. If we had, uh, we talked a couple episodes ago about like a federal job guarantee where, mm -hmm. you know, the government steps in as an employer and trains people and puts people to useful work and it might just be taxi driving. It, yeah. And, uh, you know, don't say just taxi driving. I think well, taxi no. driving is a 
a great and honorable job. And we've talked before about, you know, how certain jobs are uh, perhaps looked down upon. And that's uh, also <laughs> a tool of the employing class. Yeah, definitely. To close this episode, I think we can view the gig economy as a shift from a previous status quo that wasn't great to a current status quo that also isn't great. <laughs> but we have the power in our numbers to maybe make a status quo that is better. We can take the, the, good, the good from the old system and the good from the new system and you know turn it into a, a new and better system, hopefully. Mm. Um, of course, I do think that the, uh, the best future would be no work, but I think mm -hmm. that we can uh, make a work that's more acceptable to you know, human life. Yeah. I'm Ryan. I'm David. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>